Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for holding the majority of the rain off until later on today. Thank you for giving us this place that we could gather into that you've uh, entrusted to us to use for your glory. We thank you for the religious freedom we currently uh, enjoy uh, to gather together as a church family, as brothers and sisters, as your children, to learn from your word, to sing praises to you, uh, to pray, to give, to be one, among one another, filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it endures forever, that its truth will endure forever, uh, and we can anchor our souls into it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On a popular website about five years ago, several people submitted stories about strangers helping people in need. The first one is directly related to the season we're now in. One person wrote, my parents got divorced when I was 10. My mom and I struggled financially after that, and our first few holidays were hard. My first Christmas after the, the divorce was, a, was difficult and emotional for both of us. On our first Christmas Eve without my dad, our doorbell rang, and when I opened the door, no one was there, but someone had left an envelope. In the envelope was a card from Santa with a few hundred dollar bills in it. Someone had anonymously tried to give us a great Christmas, and to this day, we still have no idea who it was. I'll remember that forever. One woman wrote, I was 40 miles from home in a high crime area for a work obligation and I had driven with my empty gas tank light on for the entire trip there. I had $1.67 on my debit card. And as I asked the clerk at the sketchy gas station I stopped at to put a dollar on the pump, a man walked in. My card was declined, so I sat in my car trying to find any change or singles I might have stashed. The man came up to my car and told me he put $5 on my pump. I don't know if this man has any idea how much he helped me, but it got me home safe, even though I cried tears of appreciation for most of my drive. And lastly, another woman wrote, I moved to California last month completely on my own. Two weeks after I got there, I was in a huge car accident. Not only had I just arrived, but I had absolutely no one to call in an emergency. Going through such a major trauma with no one by your side was the worst feeling in the world. However, that day, a ton of strangers banded together to make sure I didn't feel alone. The paramedics and firefighters not only saved me at the scene, but ended up falling in love with my dog who was in the accident with me, so they brought him back to their fire station and kept him while I was in the hospital recovering. And my nurses were out of this world. When they heard I didn't have anyone to come get me and no way to get home and had pretty much, much lost everything in the crash, they banded together and raised hundreds of dollars of their own money to pay for me to get home and have something in my pocket to start rebuilding. I don't even have the words to express adequate thanks. I'm now dating one of the paramedics who saved my life and took care of my dog, so maybe everything happens for a reason. End quote. In all these stories, the situation looked entirely bleak with very little hope. 
Then out of nowhere, someone came to provide the help that was absolutely necessary in that situation. In our passage today, reviewing from over a month ago, Jesus has reviewed certain pieces of information that provided a very bleak, dark, and hopeless picture for his disciples earlier in their conversation during this last Passover observance together. Jesus had already revealed to them that they would all be directly targeted by Satan himself. One of them would betray Jesus unto death. Peter would deny even knowing Jesus three times. And that most pertinent to today's message, he would be leaving them soon. And where he would be going, they could not follow yet. That's a lot of hits, aren't they? One right after another. And painting a very bleak, dark, hopeless picture. Now, Jesus had also revealed to his disciples that when he would leave them, he would go to prepare a place of safety and belonging for them in his Father's household of heaven. But in today's passage, Jesus reveals another hope-filled truth. Like in our opening stories, even though the situation the disciples would soon find themselves in would look very bleak, and he would soon no longer be physically with them anymore, Jesus would be sending someone else to provide the help that would be absolutely necessary to live the life he had called them all to live. We spent all of last week's time talking about one verse, if you remember, verse 15, about what Jesus flat out stated love for him actually was and how we actually show it by obeying his commandment to repent and put our trust in him as our savior and king and through that keeping and seeking to obey all the commands of righteous living in God's word. All three members of the Trinity knew that we couldn't live the life God, uh, Jesus had called all of his disciples to live without required supernatural help. It's the whole point and reason that we can't earn our way into heaven on our own, and all we can do is repent of our sin and take Jesus' substitutionary death for our own and his resurrection as the foundation for our future resurrection. So if we can't be righteous enough on our own to earn entrance into heaven, we also need a supernatural helper to empower us to follow God's commandments for righteous living. This helper is who Jesus reveals next. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 14. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 14 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 14, we're going to be spending uh, only, similar to last week, we're only going to be spending our time on two verses this week. But there are several deep theological truths that we can dig out of just these couple of verses. Verses, 15, uh, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Similar to last week, like I said, we're only spending our time on two verses. Firstly is the revelation of the introduction of the helper into the earthly lives of Jesus' disciples, even us as disciples today. 
Let's talk about the title and name of this being that Jesus gives, the one known as the Helper. Jesus first uses this name here in verse 16, then again in verse 25, then again in chapters 15 and 16. The Greek word used here is parakletos, and outside of the Apostle John, once again using it one last time in 1 John to refer to Jesus, John 14, 15, and 16 are the only places in the entire Bible where this word is used, parakletos. It's a combination of the word para, meaning from close beside, and kaleo, meaning to make a call, or best understood as making the best judgment call because one has the most complete insider knowledge about a situation. Kaleo was used most often in legal situations in the Greco-Roman world, where an attorney or a lawyer submitted lawful evidence in a court case that stood up to scrutiny. In other words, Kaleo referred to an excellent lawyer who submitted solid evidence in court cases in order to win them. When it, come, when it comes to parakletos, or translated into English as the paraclete, it bears with it the meaning of a person who not only provides the evidence of your vindication and justification in a court case setting, such as, let's say, the holy court of God judging you and your soul based only on Jesus' blood of righteousness covering your sin, but a person who does so while being so close beside you, but even as we read in verse 17, even within you, that he knows you and your intentions perfectly. This is conveyed in some English translations as the advocate. That might be what your version says. In fact, when minors are having to deal with legal situations today, this term of advocate is still used today. For when a state will assign a legal advocate to come alongside of and aid minors and their family in the legal system. More than that, though, the kaleo, or advocate, is so para, or so close to us, personally, spiritually, and physically, that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 that he prays with groans on our behalf when we don't even know what to pray for. And so he's also the comforter, as some English versions also translate this. Your version may have helper, it may have advocate, or it may have comforter, but you can see how they all mean the same thing and refer to the same person here. We're going to see multiple and various ways the paraclete ministers to us in our deepest innermost being as disciples of Jesus, but this is the most basic understanding of the paraclete that Jesus first reveals to his disciples. The paraclete is the spiritual attorney who bears witness to our salvation, even sealing us for our salvation unto eternal life, and knows the righteous law of God so well that he can guide and teach it to us through God's word, and convict us when we disobey it to lead us to repentance and back on the path of righteousness, 
and does all of this knowing God perfectly and knowing us perfectly, even to the point of living inside of us to do this, and empowers us with his power and strength to help us as the helper know God's word and live it out. All of that is wrapped up in the name paraclete or helper or advocate or comforter and from what else we learn from the rest of God's word. Jesus also reveals that this helper is one and the same as the spirit of truth. That's what he says next. And if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus comes right out later on in verse 26 and clarifies, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I said to you. So we also discover from verses 16 and 17 that this helper is one and the same as the third person of the Trinity, none other than the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will be given by God the Father. In verse 26, we read that the Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. That is based on and only after what Jesus would accomplish through his death and resurrection, opening up salvation to eternal life. And so because of that, Jesus could also declare in John 16, 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I am leaving. For if I do not leave, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is why, biblically, we can see that both the Father and the Son would send the Holy Spirit. In addition, Jesus reveals that this Holy Spirit, who would be sent to reside within Jesus' disciples, would be given forever. We have other instances of the Holy Spirit working throughout the Old Testament, and this directly informs our biblical understanding of him today. In fact, the Holy Spirit is already mentioned in the very second verse of the entire Bible. Some of you might be wondering, where does the Holy Spirit show up? The very second verse of the Bible. We know the first verse very well, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the very next verse says, And the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the surface of the waters. We already know from our other messages that it was God the Father who spoke everything into existence, and it was through God the Son that everything was created, but we also read here that the Holy Spirit was involved in that creation of the universe as well. Keep that in mind. We also have instances of the Holy Spirit empowering certain individuals to perform incredible feats of strength or winning battles. Moses' successor, Joshua, whom we just finished studying in men's Bible study, was filled with the Holy Spirit for the role God had called him to. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And as we started studying in men's Bible study, now God empowered certain, uh, yeah, several different judges to defeat oppressive armies. But the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to set them free, Othniel, that's one of the judges, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went to war, the Lord handed over to him Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. 
And then we read also, so the spirit of the Lord covered Gideon, another judge, like clothing, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abizarites were called together to follow him. And another judge, then Samson went down to Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring toward him, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, so that he tore it apart as one tears apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. Incredible feat of strength. The Holy Spirit was also given to the first king of Israel, King Saul, to win battles, but then left him after Saul disobeyed God one too many times. So the Holy Spirit was given to certain people to empower them to defeat enemies and armies. Keep that also in mind. And thirdly, it was the Holy Spirit who gave Old Testament prophets their messages from God. Last week, we looked at how the Apostle Peter confirmed that no prophecy was given through human origin or interpretation, but directly through the Holy Spirit carrying the prophets to give it. Likewise, David, through whom we have many, many messianic prophecies, said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his word was on my tongue. And the prophet Ezekiel confirmed and as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Like we spoke in more detail about last week, the Holy Spirit was the one who gave God's word to the prophets and apostles to write them down, and as such can and does have the wisdom and authority to reveal their meaning. Also keep that in mind now. In these three major aspects of the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament, what do we have him doing? We have him, one, involved in a new creation. Two, empowering and giving supernatural strength to fight enemies and battles. And three, giving revelation of God's messages and word. Does that sound familiar? Uh, to what we know about the Holy Spirit from the rest of the New Testament? I hope so, or some of you need to read the New Testament. <laughs> if it wasn't clear enough already, today, for Jesus' disciples, the Holy Spirit is personally involved in our new spiritual creation and transformation from the old person enchained by sin to the new person freed by Jesus' salvation. He empowers us and gives us the strength to fight the enemy of our souls in spiritual battles every day and fight them by continually surrendering them up to God to fight for us. And since he's the one who gave all of God's word to the prophets and apostles to write them down, he's the one who opens our spiritual eyes to see their revelation in order to understand it. In essence, the Holy Spirit, just like the other members of the Trinity, has always been and worked in his Trinitarian role the same since eternity past. However, Jesus reveals in verse 16 what will be drastically and dramatically different after his death, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father. In all the Old Testament instances of the Holy Spirit working, he was only given temporarily for a certain and temporary purpose. Once that purpose was fulfilled, the Holy Spirit left that person. But what Jesus does and what he reveals here 
will send the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis. Or as he says here, forever. As already revealed, this permanent basis of the Holy Spirit will be the same for all disciples of Jesus. Jesus reveals in verse 17 two crucially important truths about the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us. Number one, he would abide with us or be our connection to life. And two, he would be in us. What both of these descriptions of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives are, are a glimpse of the full restoration of what awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Amen? What was the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament supposed to be? It was supposed to be the representation of the presence of God dwelling among his people. Is there a tabernacle and temple today? Trick question. There is no longer a physical building of a tabernacle or a temple. So while God the Father and after his ascension, God the Son, while they reside in heaven, what is now the tabernacle or the temple where God the Holy Spirit abides or forms an unbreakable connection of life with or lives and has made a home in? Us as believers in Jesus Christ. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Some of us need to pound that into our minds here. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, the permanent sending of the Holy Spirit to the 120 followers of Jesus gathered in the upper room to pray together, and the subsequent permanent sending of the Holy Spirit to every believer after that meant that God himself came to abide with and make a home within us as a glimpse of, of the full kingdom of God. In fact, the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling of us means that he is the permanent seal on us, preserving us for the joyful eternity God has prepared for us. And as we'll see in a second, this permanent indwelling of the sealing Holy Spirit gives us further glimpses of the kingdom that awaits us. This permanent indwelling of God within us gives us many, many blessings and treasures of our inheritance as God's children bought with the blood of Jesus. 
We'll expand on these in the near future. But a few are the presence of God in our hearts to comfort us and encourage us and remind us that we're God's children and how much he loves us, especially in times of heartbreak, excruciating pain, and impossible difficulty. He convicts us of sin and is constantly at work in us, transforming us into more and more of the likeness of Jesus. He is the source of life, power, and strength to face any and every temptation, spiritual battle, and situation in this life. And he grows what are called the fruits of the Spirit in our hearts and lives, things we cannot manufacture on our own. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As such, Jesus states that the world, or those who never repent and take Jesus as their Savior and King, will never be able to see the Holy Spirit or know the Holy Spirit. Why? Because salvation of human beings and the grander understanding of God's plan is a coming back full circle to the paradise God created for us, where he dwelt with us. Sin is what drove us out of that paradise and away from God's presence. Jesus died and rose again to restore us back to God's presence and will return for us to restore us back to paradise. That is what we already read. Eventually, the new heavens and new earth that we read about in Revelation 21. What the Holy Spirit is then is a foretaste and a glimpse at what awaits us. Not only is he the seal that verifies and holds for us the down payment on our eternal home, but he's the very presence of God we've been restored to, albeit as we remain in sin-filled bodies still, and the spiritual gifts he gives are all foretastes of the coming kingdom as well. As you've heard me bring up before, all the gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 are glimpses of our full restoration of the kingdom of God. The understandings of wisdom and God's word in order to teach them to others is a glimpse of, what, of when God will fully reveal his wisdom and himself to us in dwelling with us. The gift of incredibly strong faith is a glimpse of not really needing faith anymore, for we will know God as he already knows us. The gift of healing is a glimpse of our fully redeemed and glorified bodies at the rapture. The gift of praying for miracles, especially in, different, uh, in dangerous situations, and them actually coming to pass, is a glimpse of the perfect world God has planned for us. The gift of being led by the Holy Spirit to give a message you feel is from God to someone else, or known as New Testament prophecy, is a glimpse of God directly dwelling with us and giving us his messages directly. The gift of being able to tell if someone is speaking from God or from demonic influence is again a glimpse of God dwelling with us and speaking 
speaking to us directly. And the gifts of speaking in tongues or the interpretation of tongues is a glimpse of the Apostle John's heavenly revelation of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue or earthly language praising God before his throne. All of them are glimpses of the full kingdom of God. Because the very presence of the Holy Spirit is both a gift of and a glimpse of the full revelation of the treasure that has already been given to and what awaits the one who has repented of their sin and taken Jesus as Savior and King. None of those who refuse to repent of their sin recognize their need for a savior from it and pledge pledge their loyalty to him as king and living for him the rest of their days have any part of that inheritance and treasure. Those who refuse to repent and take Jesus as savior and king have no part in that inheritance and treasure. The world does not see the Holy Spirit nor recognize his work and most definitely does not and as we just saw cannot have or know the Holy Spirit. Jesus says later on and he when he comes the Holy Spirit will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. As one biblical scholar points out this will primarily be done through the believers he indwells. It'll be the believers he indwells that will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. Not only does he convict us of our sin to repent of and get right with God, but he uses us to call out what in the world is evil. You see that? Like I brought up once again last week, the most prevalent false gospel of our day preaches to just love people, to just accept whatever way they choose to live their lives as perfectly fine, and the cardinal sin is to offend anyone with your beliefs or opinions. But in direct contrast, Jesus himself states that one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit within us is for us to call out evil for what it really is. No matter how good and loving the world tries to masquerade it as, to stand up against evil and do what we can to keep its tide at bay, and to stand up for the truth of God's word with God's definition of love, kindness, and compassion. With the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, transforming us, and empowering us, we are called to be temples and representatives of his indwelling us in and towards this dark, evil, chaotic, hopeless, and desperate world. Since it cannot see or know the Holy Spirit on its own, we are called to be the representatives and displays of the Holy Spirit's conviction, truth, strength, and gospel message to them of repentance from sin and salvation found only in Jesus and Jesus alone. We will see what else Jesus reveals about the indwelling Holy Spirit, but this is the most basic foundational truth and understanding of the Holy Spirit that Jesus wanted his immediate disciples to know for the future and for us as his disciples today to know now. 
When we come to God in prayer and repentance of sin and take Jesus as our Savior from that sin and commit the, uh, the rest of our lives to living for him as king, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, will permanently come to both seal us for the full restoration of God's presence and paradise and as a glimpse of that full presence of God and foretaste of that paradise. He will abide with or be the connection of life to us and make his home within our bodies as his temple to empower, convict, and transform us to be more like Jesus. And through that, convict the world of sin and call them to repentance as well. This basic foundational truth about the indwelling Holy Spirit was to give Jesus' disciples sitting around that Passover table Hope, hope for the future in the midst of such a bleak and dark picture. And this basic foundational truth about the indwelling Holy Spirit is the source of peace of God's very presence within us, our hearts and our lives in the midst of such a bleak picture of this world. So let us fully open ourselves up to and fully surrender ourselves up to being filled with that peace, comfort, conviction, instruction, understanding, encouragement, strength, and joy that only the indwelling Holy Spirit can fill us with. Verses 16 and 17 again. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us recognize what a treasure we have with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I pray that if there's anybody here Today, who has not yet repented of their sin and, and taken you as Savior and King, does not yet have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, I pray that they would do that right now. Come to prayer and do, come to you in prayer and do that. And Lord, those of us who can feel and see the Holy Spirit working in us and moving in us and changing us and leading us and convicting us and comforting us and giving us the peace that we need, I pray that we would continually thank you for that gift. And, and treasure and surrender ourselves daily up to his power and influence. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.